Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at Magellan TV for once again sponsoring this episode. It's brands like Magellan TV that keep this channel afloat, so be sure to go click the link at the top of the description and show them your love. Magellan TV is one of my absolute favorite ways to entertain myself during lockdown. There's always a documentary to watch on Magellan TV to keep the boredom from creeping in. They have a massive library of super interesting documentaries, including true crime, history, science, space, and nature shows. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers alongside talented curators to make sure that each and every documentary on their service is the most premium you can find. The other day, I watched Bigfoot Monster Mystery on Magellan TV, which, as you can guess, is all about the infamous Bigfoot. The documentary follows a world-class photographer and a group of so-called Bigfoot experts as they try to hunt down the creature. And it shows what it's like to search for Bigfoots. It was a really interesting and kind of amusing documentary. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to get yourself a one month free trial to Magellan TV and let me know what you think about the whole Bigfoot conspiracy. Of course, you can also watch so many more documentaries in full care at no extra cost on Magellan TV. And again, you can find a link in the description or in the pinned comments. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. John William Cooper was born on the 3rd of September 1944 in the small port town of Milford Haven in Pembrokeshire, Wales. He was a trained carpenter and upholsterer, but regularly worked in the building trade. As well as doing the building work, John regularly worked in the actual farm fields as a casual labourer on the farms across Pembrokeshire, where he was well known within that farming community. Now, not too much is known about John's upbringing, but what we do know is that when he was 12 years old, he met a girl who he would ultimately marry. At the age of 21, John married his childhood sweetheart, Patricia, on the 11th of July, 1966, and it wasn't long before the couple would welcome their first child, who they called Andrew, into the family in 1969, three years after they had eloped. Two years later, in 1971, Patricia fell pregnant for the second time with the couple's first daughter. They welcomed Teresa Cooper into the world that same year. The family lived together in a small and humble home in Milford Haven, with John continuing on at work while Patricia stayed at home to bring up their two children. John only brought home an average wage to support his family, and as with many other working families, there were often periods of financial hardship. 
that Patricia was always the kind of mother to put her kids first and ensured that they had everything they needed to excel, though their luck would change for the better as in 1978, John won £90,000 and a £4,000 Austin Princess car in a newspaper competition. These winnings would equate to around 450,000 Great British Pounds or just shy of $600,000 in today's money accounting for inflation. With his winning, John took his wife Patricia on a luxury vacation to the United States. He further gave £1,000, which is roughly £5,750 or $7,600 in today's money, to each of his 10 family members. With the money that was left over, he bought a small holding near the village of Milford Haven. On this small holding, John decided that he was going to grow barley and live more of a farmer's life, leaving his old job behind. Further to growing his own produce on the property, John contracted himself to local farmers and helped them on their own land. It seemed that John thoroughly took to a more rural farming life. Patricia Cooper decided to start breeding horses on their new grounds, a dream which she had had since she was a child. Alongside breeding horses, Patricia worked locally as a seamstress, something which she also thoroughly enjoyed. Now on top of purchasing this small holding, John also bought a beachfront property in Hazel Beach, Nayland, which was just a few minutes down the road. According to John, as can sadly be expected, when he won this large sum of money, a lot of people who knew him changed their attitudes towards the family. They viewed the family as being loaded with money and like a piggy bank that they could just get money out of whenever they wanted. But even with the family friends change in attitude, life still seemed amazing for the Cooper family. Everything was going smoothly and they had everything they wanted. In 1987, Patricia was sadly in a tragic accident involving a horse and this accident left her badly injured. Patricia's injury left her unable to help or maintain the small holding, and it destroyed her dream of breeding and trading her beloved horses. This unfortunately meant that the family had to relocate to a smaller property, as they hadn't enough hands to keep the small holding afloat. The family's smaller property was owned by a Mr. Richards, who the Coopers actually knew quite well, and was located only a stone's throw from their old smallholding. The family lived there peacefully for about two years, with Patricia continuing on as a seamstress, and John still working the lands for the farmers to bring in enough money to pay for their children and to pay their bills. In 1989, John Cooper and Mr. Richards, their landlord, had an argument, which quickly became physical. The Coopers were subsequently given notice to leave the property, but John categorically refused this notice, and somewhat stubbornly, they continued living in the property. You may be thinking, the Cooper family had won a lot of money, so why can't they just buy a new house, or something to that effect? Sure, they had won a lot of money, but John had squandered away all of their winnings by gambling on the horse races. This meant that by the 1990s, the family found themselves worse off financially than they were prior to winning the money. Patricia, always sure to put her children first, found herself having to purchase second-hand clothing and trying to stretch out meals. Bills that the Cooper family had began to go unpaid, 
and in a state of desperation, John turned to a life of petty crime and burglary. At least, that's what he claimed. John Cooper had actually been committing petty crime for years, even before Patricia's accident. It's believed that John was aware that he had gambled away all of the family's winning, and in secret, he had turned to petty crime to keep them afloat, while they were still living in the small holding. Though this secret life of petty crime and burglary evolved into something far more sinister. On the evening of the 22nd of December 1985, John Cooper had decided to go burglarise a nearby manor in Scoverston Park. The manor was home to Richard and Helen Thomas, who were brother and sister, and who were well known in the community for their wealth. The Thomas family had been millionaires, and that was a fact that John Cooper rested on during this burglary. He knew that they likely had a lot of expensive items just sitting around their lavish manor home. Expensive items that, if he could sell, could seriously help his self-inflicted financial hardship. After having scoped out the manor home, he realised that Helen Thomas, who was 54 years old at the time, was home alone. Her 58-year-old brother, presumably out of the house on business, or for a social visit, or just going to the pub, and with this preconception that Helen would be defenceless and at his mercy, John decided it was the perfect target. The burglary started out as any other, though it would soon take a sudden turn for the worst. Helen's brother Richard came home in the middle of the robbery, which took John by surprise, and sadly it would see both siblings lose their lives. Late that evening, on the 22nd of December 1985, the local fire brigade received information that the Thomas Manor house was alight. As Richard and Helen lived rurally and up a long private drive, the only reason the local fire brigade found out about the fire so quickly was due to a passing car that was fortunately driving along a road close to the manor. Firemen rushed to the scene and worked hard to try to extinguish the flames. The emergency services knew that both Richard and Helen were likely still inside the burning home, and so they devised a rescue plan. Firemen entered the property, methodically searching through each room in a desperate attempt to locate the missing siblings. Richard Thomas's body was found by firemen on the first floor landing, with bundles of paper stuffed under and around the body. The firemen made notes of the smell of paraffin within the property and quickly realised that the fire was likely intentional. After a long night of fighting the fires, the emergency services had still been unable to locate Helen. She would unfortunately not be found until the fire died down. Helen was located on the ground floor after the fire had weakened the structure of the property causing Helen's remains to fall through from the first floor to the ground floor. Helen had been placed on a bed, bound and gagged. A medical examination determined Helen to have suffered a gunshot wound to her head. Helen's remains had been barely recognisable due to the intensity of the fires. Richard was determined to have been shot point-blank in the abdomen. Investigators were still at a loss. They had no suspects, leads, or any solid evidence to go on. Nobody could figure out who had been responsible for the double homicide. Over time, and with nothing to go on, the case sadly went cold. After getting away with the murders of Richard and Helen, 
John turned back to committing petty crimes and small robberies. Four years later, in 1989, the same year that John and his landlord, Mr. Richards, had their violent arguments, which led to the Cooper family being served an eviction notice, John killed again. During another robbery, John Cooper held a couple at gunpoint in the morning of the 29th of June, 1989. This couple was Peter and Gwenda Dixon. Peter was a 51-year-old marketing manager and his wife Gwenda worked as a secretary. The Dixons had been married for several years and they were the heads of a very loving family. The family was comprised of Peter, Gwenda and their two children, Tim and Julie. The Dixon family would go on vacation in the same area of Wales every year, moving between different caravan parks in the area. It was a Dixon family tradition. This vacation was the first that Peter and Gwenda were not joined by their children for the entire vacation. The week before their stay in a caravan park in Little Haven, the couple's only son, Tim Dixon, drove to a caravan park in Pembrokeshire where his parents had been staying to spend some time with them. The following week, Peter and Gwenda Dixon were set to move to the caravan park in Little Haven. Throughout Tim's stay with his parents, they spent their days walking along the coast and dining in the local pubs and restaurants, generally just having a really good time. Tim stayed with his parents for only a few days until they were scheduled to move on to the next and final caravan park on their vacation. Peter and Gwenda were then due to go back home, which is where Tim and his parents would be reunited. And so, Tim left his parents to continue their caravan vacation and drove back home as Tim couldn't afford to miss any more time off work. The couple's daughter, Julie, had just turned 18 and had decided not to join her parents on their annual trip to Little Haven and instead went to Cyprus with a friend. Once Julie's vacation had come to an end, she had arranged for Tim to collect her from the airports and drive her back to her parents' house expecting their parents to be already home from their vacation. The siblings instead found the family home empty. Both children were confused as to why their parents had not yet returned home without letting them know. Tim was so worried that he called the manager of the caravan park in Little Haven to see if they had perhaps decided to extend their trip. The manager, though, had no recollection of seeing the Dixons in the past day and had assumed they had already left the site. The site manager then told him that they had not booked to extend their stay at the caravan park. So where were Peter and Gwenda Dixon? Why had they not returned home? Unfortunately, as with the Thomas siblings, Peter and Gwenda had been met with tragedy. The couple's bodies were found after a member of public reported a large mass of swarming flies and, quote, a pungent smell of death to the police. The Dixons' remains had been found in broad daylight on the popular Welsh coastal path, just a 10-minute walk away from the caravan park where they had been staying. The officer that had responded to the scene stated that they couldn't actually see the bodies until they were right on top of them, as they had been so heavily covered with hazel twigs and bracken. The bodies were so hard to find due to the bracken, which is a type of naturally occurring fern, which had been uprooted and replanted over the bodies with the roots still intact in an attempt to conceal them. This was a way that people trained using SAS techniques the Special Air Force would use. They would make countryside hides for bodies, whether that's animal remains or human, 
though it is not a particularly well-known and practiced technique by civilians. Gwenda was found partially clothed and lying near the edge of a cliff face just off of the path, with two shotgun wounds, one in the center of her back and the other to her chest. Peter had his hands tied behind his back and was partially hanging over the cliff itself and was shot three times to the upper chest, back and head. Peter's bank card had been taken and money was accessed from his account using the correct PIN number following his death, which meant that the perpetrator had to have forced them into giving over this PIN number before he killed them. Medical examiners further determined that Gwenda had been sexually assaulted uh, or raped prior to her death. Despite a huge manhunt, the trail eventually ran cold, and as with the Thomas siblings case, no one was prosecuted for the murders of the Dixons. Nearly two decades after the murders of the Dixons, in 2008, a new inquiry was made into the cold case. After reviewing the deaths of Peter and Gwenda, investigators determined that whoever had been responsible had to have an intimate knowledge of the area and would have likely been somebody who lived locally. This led them into reviewing other crimes committed in the area, hoping to find a link between the murders and other similar cases. The detectives inquiring into the cold cases were part of a team coined Operation Ottawa, this team was tasked with finding any links between three crimes that had devastated the local area. The double murders of the Dixons, the Thomas sibling murders, and the rape and sexual assault of two teenage girls. Investigators learnt of a series of vicious burglaries where lone women had been attacked in their homes. They had been subjected to extreme violence and force. Police actually found a crucial and disturbing link between these burglaries and the murders of Peter and Gwenda Dixon. There was the same MO in all of these crimes. The perpetrator or perpetrators attacked multiple victims, controlled them with a sawn-off shotgun, and there was always an attempt to steal from the victim. If you put the fact that the double homicide had occurred in the Dixon and the Thomas case, taking these the murder out of the equation, then all of these crimes were identical. Many of these burglaries were violent, and it would seem like the culprit or culprits enjoyed seeing the innocent homeowners cowering with fear, tied up and in pain from the hits that they gave them. These previous burglaries were all carried out by one man. John Cooper. John had actually been arrested on 16 counts of burglary and attempted burglary in 1996 and had been sentenced to 16 years imprisonment. He was finally jailed for these burglaries in 1998. Then in 2008, John was coming up for parole after serving 10 years in jail. When the detectives were combing through the evidence from John Cooper's previous robberies, they found that he liked to keep mementos from his crimes. This included keys from the houses he robbed, as well as jewellery and other small items. Police had found over 500 keys in his home that didn't unlock any doors in his own property. These sinister souvenirs show that John enjoyed hoarding trophies for each of his crimes. As well as all of these pieces of evidence, the police found hours of footage that was recorded during John's interrogation. 
This allowed the police to analyse his body language and understand the distraction and avoidance techniques he used throughout these interviews. Investigators learnt that while John was committing all of these burglaries, he was also working as a farm labourer and lived locally in the Pembrokeshire area with his wife and kids. He was a man of two personas, the charming and hard-working family man and the sinister and calculating criminal. When reviewing these interview tapes, the police believe that John Cooper's violent crimes and controlling behaviour in custody could be a potential match for the criminal profile of Peter and Gwenda's murderer. Within the cold case files they were reviewing, detectives found an artist's impression poster of a man who used Peter's bank card just hours after Peter was murdered. This would become a pivotal piece of evidence which helps the police to solve this case. Based on this piece of evidence, detectives made an incredible discovery. Just three weeks before the murders of Peter and Gwenda in 1989, John appeared on the popular British TV game show, Bullseye. When the police watched the episode, they determined that the artist's impression poster, which they had found in the cold case files, matched up perfectly with the John Cooper who could be seen on screen. The likeness was so close, you could almost mistake the impression drawing for being a commissioned portrait. With John already being held in prison for his previous burglary charges, it was crucial for the police to find the grounds to charge John with the murder of the Dixons and for the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas. John had potentially committed four homicides on top of many extremely violent and forceful burglaries, which meant that they had one chance to ensure this violent man stayed behind bars. With such high stakes, detectives were given just four days to interview who they believe was a serial killer and psychopath. John was known by many as a very intimidating person who can make you feel uneasy with just a stare and his just his body language. He had refused to cooperate during previous interviews, so the two detectives chosen to interview John spent hours poring over the old interview tapes to find the key to getting John to open up and answer their questions. They needed to get to know John William Cooper better than he knew himself. The police also took a deeper look into the previous burglaries that John committed to see if there were any further connections that they could find. After looking back at his previous crimes, they decided that they should use John's targeting of women against him. They did this by having one of the detectives interviewing him be a strong woman, a very intimidating woman who was likely to be someone who could probably intimidate John. It took six months of careful planning and studying by the interviewing detectives before they were confident enough to arrange the first meeting. They believed this interview would be the big break in the case that they needed. The detectives started the interviews in a conversational way to lull John into a false sense of security. This led John to believe that they didn't know the extent of the crimes that he had committed. With John believing that the police didn't know all the details, a smug arrogance came over him as he believed that he would once again get away with murder. While the police were confident that their strategy would work, they did not prepare for the facts that John may have had his own. 
denial and distraction. Unfortunately, no major headway was made within the interview room, and so other investigators painstakingly pored over evidence linked to his previous crimes as this interview went on. The main piece of evidence they needed to link to John was a gun found near his home by officers when he was arrested for robbery. The police were sure that the shotgun was owned by John, but when questioned about it, he fiend ignorance and denied he knew anything about it. With John denying knowing anything about the gun, the police needed to find a way to link him to this weapon. It's important to note that during interviews, John was seen making notes, his own notes, which really confused the interviewing officers who were continuing to press him about the shotgun. What was it about this gun which had John so nervous? Was there more to this shotgun than what was previously believed, and was something missed the last time it was processed for evidence? The gun had been tested by forensics 10 years earlier, but found nothing. Uh, nothing that could connect it to John or to either of the double homicides. John was a clever man who was constantly using his time in jail to improve himself. He learned how to operate a computer for the first time while he was in prison and stated to the police that he was a constantly evolving person. Could John have read up on the improved forensic testing that was now available to the police? And was he now worried about what might be found on the gun? During the interview, there was a clear moment of realization by the police that they had probably found the murder weapon due to John's nervous demeanor. Though, unfortunately, the police had run out of time. With no new DNA evidence linking John to either of the murders and no headway being made with him in these interviews, John was returned back to prison to finish serving his last eight weeks of his burglary sentence. The police were confident that John Cooper was the man that had committed these violent murders, and with him showing no remorse or accountability for what he had done, police knew for sure that if he were to be released, he would be highly likely to re-offend, and that could result in further innocent lives being lost. John had been in prison for 10 years and was now looking forward to being released so he could go back to a normal life with his wife Patricia. With this area of Wales being a very close-knit community, the kind where everyone knows everyone, many members of the police force who are working on this case live near or and around the village that John Cooper would be living in following his release. This made many of them really uneasy, as they had friends and family who lived close by, who had no idea of the extent of John's true crimes, and they were obviously unable to release the information they knew into the general public. John Cooper was released from prison in January of 2009, and the first night that he was back at home, the lead detective on the Cooper case received a call from the precinct saying that they had John Cooper on the phone. John had called the police because his wife had died in the night. Obviously, the first thing that went through everybody's mind was that he had murdered his wife Patricia. With the police failing to find evidence to charge John with the four murders of the Thomases and the Dixons, it instantly set off alarm bells. Had he already killed his next victim? John's account of the night was that he had been out earlier in the evening for a nice meal with Patricia and had had a lovely time. Then during the night, he heard her gasping for breath, gasping for air, and tried to revive her, but was unsuccessful. 
John and his wife Patricia had been living together since they were 18 and shared a happy life before John was sent to prison. While Patricia had in fact stayed with John throughout his prison sentence, the police decided that before before John's release they should go and speak to Patricia just to make sure, you know, they were going to be fine, Patricia was, was okay with it. This conversation revealed to the investigators that she was worried about this release. He was, she was worried that um, her husband would get out and something could go wrong again, Some, something bad could happen. Patricia's body was examined by the local pathologist who determined that she had actually died from natural causes and there was no reason to suspect that foul play had been involved. Even with this ruling, many members of the police force familiar with this case believe that Patricia was aware of the man that she was going to be sharing a home with and perhaps she couldn't bear to subject herself to spending the rest of her life living under the same roof with a man who she knew had killed four innocent people. John was once again back in his hometown and with the police having no grounds to bring him back in for questioning, Investigators turned once again to the forensics teams to try to find some way of connecting John with the two double homicides. Close to one million Great British Pounds had been spent on the forensic budgets for this investigation over an 18 month period. The police were beginning to give up hope that any new evidence would be uncovered that could be useful towards a conviction in either of the cases. In despair, the lead detective for the Cooper case called him the lead forensics advisor for a meeting. This meeting was to give the forensic team an ultimatum. Investigators told them that they would take them off the case because it had been stagnant for such a long time with no new evidence coming to light. The lead forensic advisor convinced the detectives that there was still a lot more forensic work to be done and that they needed some permission to start doing textile fibre work. With the go-ahead to start these new fibre methods, the forensic team had their work cut out for them as there were thousands of different fabric items within the murder evidence from the two double homicides. They decided to start with the clothing items that were similar to the clothing that the murderer was described to have been wearing. The first clothing item they tested was a pair of green shorts, which they had previously taken from John Cooper's home. On the shorts, they found a tiny fragment of what they came to determine was blood. They ran this fragment of fabric containing this blood through DNA profiling and found that the blood was a match to Peter Dixon, the man killed on the Welsh coastal path. That was it. That was the key piece of information, the key piece of evidence that the police had been so desperately searching for. Three years after the cold case was reopened, they finally had that piece of evidence needed to arrest him. The 53-year-old was described as self-employed. He's been accused of 16 burglaries and attempted burglaries in the Milford Haven, Nayland and Rosemarket areas of Pembrokeshire. The investigators only had 24 hours from when they arrested John to find enough grounds to fully charge him. They needed to find every piece of the puzzle and they needed to try to get John to confess. The police needed John to admit that the shorts, which carried the fragments of blood from one of the murder victims, were his. To get John to admit to the ownership of the shorts, they started by asking about other pieces of clothing that they had taken from his home to almost ease him into the questioning process. By withholding the discovery that they had found the victim's blood on these shorts, they were able to get John to tell them that he did in fact own the shorts, 
While John did admit the shorts from evidence were his, he refused to agree that they were the same shorts that could be seen in the artist's impression drawing. John spent a lot of time trying to explain that the shorts they were discussing from evidence were short shorts, and the ones seen in the drawing were long shorts. This was all in an attempt to divert the detectives away from him being a bigger suspect in the murders of the Dixons. Based on the unwavering declarations by John that these shorts were not the same based on their length, and the fact that at the time of the murders, his wife Patricia had been working as a seamstress, the forensics teams decided to take a closer look at the hemming on the shorts. They found that they had actually been professionally hemmed by presumably John's unassuming wife Patricia. Underneath this hemming, they found DNA material that matched with the Dixon's daughter, Julia. Thinking back to when the police were first collecting evidence from John's home, they remembered that he liked to keep souvenirs from his crimes, and as there was never any contact between John Cooper and the Dixon's daughter, Julia, as she had not joined her parents on the vacation she had been in Cyprus, police were shocked to realise that these shorts were actually owned by Peter Dixon. John thought he could get away with not only the murders, but also wearing the clothes of the victims he had murdered. When he was confronted with the forensics evidence found on the shorts, John claims that he had no idea how that had happened, he claims that his wife had sourced the shorts for him. What shocked the police even more was that when John was cornered with this truth, he continued to come up with more lies to make himself seem completely innocent. One of these lies was telling the police that he was actually worried because his son would regularly take his clothes and wear them. Was John actually trying to throw his own son under the bus for his crimes? Well, there didn't seem to be too much love between John Cooper and his son, the police were still flawed that he would be willing to try and muddy up his own son's name. When speaking of his son, John often referred to him as Adrian Cooper, always using his full name, which showed detectives how little love or how little of a relationship there was between the pair, especially since Adrian Cooper no longer went by this name and instead went by Andrew Cooper. When spoken to by police, Andrew Cooper described an upbringing of terror. When I was nine, um, was the first time that my father got violent with me. He wouldn't treat me like a child. He would come at me frothing at the mouth. His eyes would be bulging. He'd expand himself, he'd clench his fists, and he would lay into me like, like I was made of rubber. He, he purposely bounced me off door frames and just throw me around like I was a doll. But to everyone else, when he was in the pub or out playing darts or social life, patting him on the back, good old Johnny. One story Andrew retold was that of the childhood family dog who John beat to death with a shovel before burying it in a pit in the back garden. Andrew recalled that his father regularly went out at night in dark clothing with a shotgun under his arm and read from an old SAS survival handbook. This further cemented the idea that John Cooper might actually be a psychopath in the detectives' minds. He might actually be the perpetrator in these cases. He, he might be the one responsible. At this point in the interviews, many of John's claims were ludicrous and far-fetched, and the detectives could see that he was lashing out like a cornered animal. 
strikes me, everything is put to you. There's always been somebody else to blame. There's always somebody else who's a liar. There's always somebody else who's the criminal. But everything my colleague has put to you today, it all comes back to you. And that is why you were here today, isn't it? Because that's your outlook of every damn thing. Oh, yes. Put them all on to John Cooper because that's good and proper. Forget about Adrian Cooper. Forget about all. It's only John Cooper. You're making things try to fit to John Cooper. And it's bloody annoying. But we got this friends again. It all comes back. You know, this young lady, I once said, you're trying to make things fit. You choose, you, you and your colleagues and them in there, choose not to believe it, to look elsewhere. This is the first look that the police managed to get of the real John Cooper, angry and argumentative. Once the interviews were over, the police then set about trying to pinpoint the murder weapon. They already had an inkling that the shotgun they previously found in the hedgerow outside John's house was the murder weapon. But when it was first tested all those years ago, there was very little forensic evidence that helped the case. Since there had been significant leaps forward in forensic testing technologies since these double murder cases, they decided to go back and look at this gun in greater detail to see if they could find anything new, anything more that could be on there that could help, you know, put, put this man away. More than 20 years after being entered into evidence, the gun had seen better days. The paint that had been used across the barrel of the weapon had started peeling off, landing at the bottom of the evidence bag. This was spotted by the forensics team, who could see that in a certain light and at a certain angle, the black paint seemed to carry a red hue. Spurred on by this, the forensics teams ran DNA testing on the paint chips and determined that the paint was used to cover up splatters of Peter Dixon's blood. This was the final nail in the coffin for John Cooper. They had a pair of shorts that he admitted to owning, as well as a shotgun found in the hedgerow of his home, both splattered with the blood of the murdered Peter Dixon. New forensic fibre techniques also discovered that a fibre found on a pair of John's gloves belonged to a sock found on the body of the murdered Richard Thomas. These key pieces of evidence placed John Cooper at the murder scenes of both the Thomas siblings and the Dixons. This was all enough evidence to finally charge John Cooper with the two double homicides. The trial against John Cooper took place at Swansea Crown Court and lasted eight weeks, ending on the 26th of May 2011. After deliberation, the jury found him guilty on all four counts of murder. Further to these charges, he was also charged with rape, indecent assaults and robbery. You see, back in March of 1996, John had confronted a group of five teenagers, three girls and two boys aged between 15 and 16 years old, who were playing in a local field at around 7pm. John, who had been wearing a balaclava and with his sawn-off shotgun in hand, ordered the terrified teenagers to lie face down in the grass. John also had a knife on his person during this attack. First, he grabbed hold of a 16-year-old girl and raped her at knife point. He then demanded money off the other teens before approaching another one of the girls. This was one of the 15-year-olds and he subjected her to indecent assaults. As he left the scene, he fired a gunshot as a warning and threatened them that he would find and kill them if they reported what had happened to the police. 
John Cooper is now one of the few people in the UK serving a whole life term sentence without the possibility of parole. This whole life minimum term was for the double homicides, and on top of this, he was further sentenced to concurrent terms of 15 years for rape, 8 years for indecent assaults, and finally 7 years for attempted robbery. This means that Cooper will fortunately never be free to harm anyone ever again. John Cooper will rot away behind bars until he meets his maker. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Let me know what you think of this case down below in the comments section. Again, a massive thank you to the people over at Magellan TV for sponsoring today's episode. Make sure you click the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to get your one month free trial today. My merch store is still live, so if you wanted to grab something from there, you still can. Head on over to joshuamouse.shop. 10% of each purchase is being donated to the DNA Dope project. There is international shipping. Shipping issues have all been sorted out on the merch store, so all international shipping is £9.99. Um, so make sure you just jump over there and get something looking get get something cool make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time i post a brand new true crime video just like this one and with all that being said i'll see you in the next case <laughs>